why is this tiny little worm important to anybody else? And then you see, well, it's working with a lot of other species in the ground to turn over carbon, to turn over nutrients, to help store soil, carbon and soils. And so it's everything's got a role. Hello and welcome to CSU Spur of the Moment, the podcast of Colorado State University's Spur Campus in Denver, Colorado. People who manage lands, who are interested in climate change in Washington or or whatever the subject may be, dams, fish, agriculture, they all want to say this is based on science. On this podcast, we talk with experts in food, water, health, and sustainability, and learn about their current work and their career journeys. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Diana Wall, the inaugural director of the School of Global Environmental Sustainability and a university distinguished professor at Colorado State. Dr. Wall has been recognized for her 25-year career conducting research on soil ecosystems and climate change in Antarctica, and was an elected member of the National Academy of Sciences and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She's also the 2013 laureate of the Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement. Welcome, Dr. Wall. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. So I'd love to start with your current work. It is various, but has focused on climate in particular. You are a professor in the Department of Biology, a research scientist of longstanding, and director of the School of Global Environmental Sustainability. What does that combination of roles look like? What's a day in the life for you? Well, number one, it's always exciting, and it's always multiple multiple choices, I guess you'd say. So it is a, it's actually a very good career. Because in the in the biology lab, I have a lab where I have people who are active daily in research that looks at uh, glo- global issues, primarily soil, soil biodiversity, uh, just re- related to all the species on Earth. Then in in the position I'm in as director of the School of Global Environmental Sustainability, it's also kind of a multiple choice because there's so many different ways people can contribute to sustaining you know, life on earth and and the use of natural resources. And CSU is really strong in that. So it's across all campus. So my day is pretty much a mixture of exciting on the ground action where we're collecting data or um, looking at a proposal or talking about a new experiment that may have something to do with Antarctica or it may have something to do with the grasslands here. And then from the perspective of being in the School of Global Environmental Sustainability, it's exciting also because there are a lot of young, fresh minds mixing with some of us who've got some experience and looking at how we can strengthen what we do for tomorrow's generations. Thank you. Can we focus a little on the research side? So you have uh, been focused on soil ecology for a long time. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the kinds of work your lab is doing right now. um, And what are the questions you're looking to answer and why? Yeah, I think very simply, if we look above ground at trees and our natural resources, you know, go to the national park, you see all this beautiful biodiversity that we're crazy about in Colorado. But we're missing about half of it, well, a quarter of it below ground are all these invertebrates that people don't pay any attention to very much. And they say, oh, we don't care about them because we can't see them. And so what my lab does is actually looks at some of these invertebrates and how they contribute to carbon cycles, nutrient cycles. And it's a mixture of looking through a microscope and discovering a brand new world of living 
living animals slithering along, each with their own identity, some wearing funny little crowns on their head, I guess I would call them. And then seeing, having experiments in the field where we look either in Antarctica, where it's a very simple soil ecosystem, uh, it looks kind of like Mars, but there's living things in the soil. In fact, that's the only place. There's nothing above ground to say this is a, you know, a tree, a forest or whatever. It's just all hidden below ground, but it contributes a lot to the carbon cycle. So it's this mixture of uh, creating experiments, looking at how climate change affects those food webs below ground here versus there where we can observe it with warming climates. So when you talk about a soil ecosystem and you, you used the term invertebrates, can you say more about what that means? What are you actually looking at? Is it the bacterial systems, worms? What, when you say invertebrates, maybe define that for us. Yeah. So, you know, above ground, we know, above soil, we know all sorts of invertebrates, ants, termites, you know, we can identify those. I work on ones that are even smaller than that. They're like as thin as your eyelash. And if you held a glass of water up and you had five million tiny roundworms in there that I had collected from soil, I could swirl that and you wouldn't be able to see them. But under a microscope, they are just, they're beautiful. And they, to me, these nematodes uh, occupy every link in the food chain. So it doesn't matter if uh, bact it's bacteria that are decaying of a leaf or if it's a fungus decaying a leaf. There's a nematode group that's got mouth parts ready to go and say, that's my favorite food. This is my favorite food. And then they go all the way up until they're predators on other smaller animals or eaten by something else. And that's how they contribute to the food web. Got it. So nematodes are really everywhere around the world, right? Everywhere. They're in your streams, the sediments of streams, and they're in oceans and depths of oceans. They're just different sizes and different different species of them. So it's it's much like having um, all, the, all the mammals on earth, you know, at the campus. Mm -hmm. Only we see it in a soil sample. Got it. So what you focus on in particular are, are microscopic nematodes in the soil in Antarctica and then comparing that to other soil. More diverse systems. Systems yeah. in other places. So can you talk a little bit about that Antarctic soil ecosystem? I think a lot of folks don't think about Antarctic dirt because they're or soil because they're they're used to thinking of Antarctica as covered in ice and snow. Well, there's an area of Antarctica, and it's, the, it's very near one of the U.S. bases. So we fly from here to Christchurch. Christchurch, it's a long military flight to the Antarctic continent, which is, and the continent's bigger than the United States and Mexico, I guess. And so we then take helicopters into this area that's the largest ice-free area on the whole continent. So that means by ice-free, it means there's no ice where we look. It's just if somebody wants to say dirt, they could call it dirt, but it's soil. And if you just looked, you would say there's not anything flying around. There's no mosquitoes. There's no nothing. It's a desert, and you have to take a soil sample. And then all of a sudden, you just see it teeming with these tiny nematodes. But what we see is fewer species. What, what I mean by that is I can go in, and we have for a number of years, looked at how climate change over time is affecting the number of juveniles, the females, the males, how many are dying. We keep the demographics. It's kind of like doing the demographics of LA. What happens every year? 
what's your loss of species or loss of of nematodes and what's your your uh, increase what's happening once the soil warms yeah it's a it's a nematode census essentially yes. yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> that's a good way i'll remember that <laughs> so uh, that's fascinating and obviously it is telling you something about how climate is impacting this particular ecosystem, then right. how do you think about how that might be extrapolated to other ecosystems or what it is telling us about climate change in general? I think what it's telling us uh, everywhere, and these are a lot of scientists that are looking at this, not only me for more diverse sites like forest and grasslands and uh, deserts that are warmer, tropical systems, is that we're seeing that there are changes in the composition of the soil food webs. And this is due directly or indirectly to climate change, warming, droughts, drying of the system like the drought that we've got in the West here. And so one of the things that we are trying to establish is what is the, what is the baseline biodiversity in the United States? And then we want to monitor that, not just me, but a whole lot of scientists are volunteering around the world to monitor how the biodiversity below ground is changing for bacteria. Are they increasing or decreasing? Is that more food for the nematodes that feed on them? Then is that more uh, food for the mites that feed on the nematodes and so on up to the predators in the soil system? What does that mean for us? Well, soil fertility. These, these animals below ground and the microbes are working on uh, making sure there's enough carbon and nitrogen in a fashion in a way that plants can absorb it. So it's directly tied to plant growth. And if we change this, if we change the species, I should say, the animals and the food webs, we're also changing what happens with plant production. Production, We're changing the maybe the amount or how nutritious it is. Uh, we're changing also, we've got to think about earthworms are in the soil with these other animals. And so we're changing all of those bigger animals that create pores in soil and aerate the soil and moisture comes through that soil, all the aggregates that are formed to make sticky little soil particles, all of these, these things that we depend on from soil and the storage of carbon in the soil is all due to food webs working together with what's above ground. Just to distill a little of what you said into maybe a few a few points um, for our listeners to remember, the changing climate is changing the ecosystem in our soil, which has impacts on things like soil productivity for agriculture and right. also how much carbon could be stored in that soil or how much is released, which then has another impact on climate itself, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. So it's interesting because I think when people think about studying climate, studying soil is maybe not what comes to mind, but it is a critical link in the in the com complex world that that makes up climate change research. Ab absolutely, and there's some really great people here at CSU who do that. Mm -hmm. Work only on soil and carbon storage. So um, maybe we can go back to, uh, you were describing how you get down to your research site in Antarctica, and it sounds very dramatic. <laughs> maybe you can tell us a little bit, uh, what is it like to, to go down and do research in Antarctica, um, and what might be most surprising? I think it's the, number one is you have to build a lot of patience, because it's not, um, it's remote, you're isolated, uh, it's cold. 
And when you're in the field, you may not know when you're going to be picked up by helicopter and there's no way to get back to the base. And so that's that was kind of surprising is that, um, I mean, I'd heard about it and I knew it was so isolated, but that first season when I was, you know, they drop you off with your, you always travel, you were always in the field with somebody else because of the, the danger and the change in the weather. And uh, it is a cold, windy environment and that helicopter goes away and you have a radio and you radio the helicopter. Well, when are you coming back? Well, if he's in another valley, uh, you know, they may not be back very soon. And so you've got to be prepared to hunker down and use a, your survival gear. Um, yeah, that's the biggest surprise to me was that you really are remote. And so... That that is um, depending on yourself and your and being prepared and being ready to wait and be warm. That's a big deal. So, what was the longest you waited between being dropped off and picked up again? Well, one time we were there were several of us and we were at a New Zealand base and supposed to be there only for about three to four days and we ended up there two weeks. And so um, it was. You couldn't really travel to go see anything. Um, we were in a near a penguin rookery, and that was nice, except after so many days, penguins can get a little stinky, <laughs> and they're very curious, and you're not supposed to, you know, we have a, a U.S. Antarctic Treaty. We're not supposed to go pick up a penguin or, here, penguin, here, penguin. We had to, um, if they want to come towards you, that's fine, but you can't go chasing after a penguin. So we were all very aware of that but they just show up in the funniest places <laughs> so that was kind of a fun trip the other times um it has just been cold and you're just sitting and waiting and sitting and waiting so that's maybe a day and you get those uh, this question a lot i'm sure but when you say it's cold how cold well right now i've heard from a colleague that's uh, in his tent and he said it was um he asked the what the he checked the temperature it's minus 20 right now yeah so it's a little cold and it's very dry and your fingers crack and you know you just have you 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 get used to it yeah you get used to it but you also have to be committed to the work it sounds like to yeah. want to be down yeah. there yeah it's a beautiful place it's a you know i'm very very fortunate mm -hmm. i know it's a on a lot of people's list to hopefully someday be able to go to antarctica in their lifetime so um, we can all learn a little about how to be prepared from, for that from you, although I'm sure none of us will have quite as uh, challenging a time. Um, okay, so I'd like to ask a little bit about, so I, I looked at your CV in advance of our conversation, and there's a very long list of different positions and activities, a very long list of awards you re you've received, and you even have a valley in Antarctica named after you. Can you tell us a little bit about which of those roles or which of those awards has been most meaningful for you and a little bit about why it has had that impact? I, well, there's several. I mean, I think to have your peers recognize you is just an amazing thing. And and I've been very, very lucky. But I think the two that um, just right off the top that I think of is one with, that's from the the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research, and that's all the Antarctic researchers around the world. And that was um, really a surprise and a shock for me that, that I got the, that award that year. And so that really was validation that, you know, looking at life and soil, 
And doing this and finding how it's tied to climate change really does add to the whole the whole story of how the continent is changing. And if that continent is changing, what else are we seeing in soils around the world? So that that was very meaningful. And the other one, of, of course, is the Tyler Award uh, for Environmental Achievement. That is, I mean, when I looked at some of the people that have gotten that, I just kept thinking, I really think they made a mistake. <laughs> I really think because there's, you know, Jane Goodall and some of these other people, Tom Lovejoy, all these these people who've been studying biodiversity and really making the world aware of it. And I just felt extremely grateful and humble about being in that kind of a, a crowd. Well, there's no question that you absolutely deserve to be in that company. We're very fortunate to have you at CSU and uh, contributing to um, the, the scientific body of work around climate change, around soil ecosystems, around everything that you've touched over the course of your career. It's, it's very, very impressive. So can you tell us a little bit more about the School of Global Environmental Sustainability, or what we call SOGIS for short? Um, can, you, can you tell us about why it's important to have a school like this? What inspired you to create it, and um, what is it doing right now? Well, I think one of the first things I would say is I didn't really create it. I think, you know, it's kind of a, a wonderful thing that happened at CSU that people from faculty from many disciplines, some deans, so it's got administration in it, were involved in a task force to come up with this cross-campus school that, you know, brings together many, many disciplines, many, many departments um, and it just creates an avenue for people to, to cross over into another field and say, you know, I really can't understand this. In other words, I can't um, see how we would sustain uh, a forest unless I have information from the people over in this college. And so when, in many ways, what we do is, is look at um, grand challenges like climate change, like pollution, like you know, the water issues, and these are, you know, happening around the world. And the students want to be trained in these. And we have expertise, and I think this is a strength of CSU, and the strength of the school that was created was to have so many people around the campus that you can't put them in one school, center, whatever. We are kind of virtual, but People meet, it's matchmaking on these grand challenges, whether it's economics, whether it's society, environmental justice, whether it's um, what you're looking at in terms of 10 years, what will climate change be in this region for agriculture? All of us, it's the issues seem to be focused on that. And I think that's that model, rather than creating a new building and a new college, which is, is also what a lot of universities are doing, is really unique and a real strength for CSU. Great. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. My background's in ecology and, um, you know, you pull on one thread and all of the other things are impacted, right? So having the opportunity to think about that, not only within, say, an ecosystem, but then thinking about it from a disciplinary perspective, that if you pull on one thing, it, that you can't pull on the economic system and have it not impact the environmental system and have it not be impacted by the governmental system. So I really appreciate that interdis interdisciplinary approach. And it's one of the things that we're really focused on at Spur, as you know, 
making yes. sure that we're kind of thematically oriented rather than disciplinarily organized. So um, that that is intentional in the same way that I think the SOGIS organization is, is intentional on that. Um, so I have a couple other questions for you, and then we'll transition to sort of how you got where you are. And the, the first is really around science communication and, and science, scientific understanding. So you've been an advisor to – a science advisor to a number of different groups, including a, on a working group for the president's um, uh, science advisory uh, group um, in, in D.C. So what does a role like that mean, to be a science advisor? Why is it important, and what do you wish the general public understood about science better? Well, I think we all want to know that um, when we hear information, it's got some background behind it in terms of, you know, data and strength and and it's credible. I don't want to go outside in the morning and hear somebody on the radio say, oh, it's, you know, 75 degrees outside and walk out and it's a blizzard. And so we want to build up that information and relate that to other people. And in case of big decision making, I think people who manage lands, who are interested in climate change in Washington or or whatever the subject may be, dams, fish, agriculture, they all want to say, this is based on science. And so what we try to do, I think this is true for almost every scientist, is here is some information just to help you make your decision easier on what the policy or the outcomes or the management may be of our lands in the U.S. Yep. I, I Obviously, um, having science-informed policy is something that um, is uneven. Yes. Uh, and uh, so in the in the cases where you're able to, to do that, I think that's really important. And I guess one of the things that comes to mind for me as well is is having the general public be more scientifically literate tends to also push more policy decisions to be informed by science because people are looking at their constituents and their constituents are asking for scientifically informed decision making. I think that's really true. And I think that, you know, in the past we have been um, scientists have been in their ivory tower. And very happy because I think, you know, working in science is one of the most exciting things you could choose as a career. But I also think that we we recognize to a much greater extent than we did 20 years ago, that if we don't communicate science to affect policy or to inform the public. And so I always like to, wherever I am, if somebody says, like you're sitting on an airplane and somebody says, what do you used to, what do you do? I used to, when I was younger, I would say, oh, you know, I work at a university and I wouldn't say whether I did teaching or research. Now, when they say, what do you do? I say, I'm a scientist. And if the conversation doesn't die, (laughs) then I'll say something about, you know, it really is uh, gratifying. And it's wonderful to see the students who are coming today not only want to know their discipline and their particular, what they're majoring in, but also say, how is this going to affect me, this particular challenge? How is fracking going to check chip? How is agriculture in a drought situation? How is no water in the dam going to help us? They want to know these answers. And so we have to, I think scientists have to communicate. This is what we know up to this point with a number of people, number of other scientists from other disciplines, this multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary approach and give that information clearly to to the public. 
Absolutely. Easier said than done, particularly in communicating really complicated things, but very, very important. Yes. Yeah. And I think you can see that, you know, just from the, they're having the climate conference meetings in Egypt this week, and a number of people from CSU have gone. And I think looking at the, one of the things they remarked about is how different it was this year with the number of people, the emphasis on all the, the students coming, the young people coming to say, how can we work on changes together? This unification of uh, what we know, what's evident, and where we have to go in the new ideas is really a part of this trying to communicate to the public. Yep, absolutely. So can we talk uh, a little bit about climate change specifically? What sure. is, um, especially given the timing and the conversations that are happening in Egypt right now, what do you think is most important for uh, the general public or our, our audience to understand about what we're learning about climate change right now? What is it you're most worried about and what gives you the most hope? Yeah, I think the what's happening right now is I think there's no doubt that the climates are is changing and uh, that it's having an effect on us and whether it's weather patterns, whether it's uh, getting the same food and the same crops in the same place or uh, seeing seeing uh, vegetation and animals move with a, a climate, a better climate. So I think climate change is, a, is, is to me, and I think it's to most of these people, climate change is occurring and, and what can we do about it? How can we adapt to it? Um, what kind of solutions can we find? How innovative we're going to be about it? And I think this looks at the areas of decarbonization. How can we take that CO2 out of the atmosphere? And then there's, how are we going to live with it? Are we all going to start walking around with umbrellas or are we going to start walking around in our flip-flops all year? And when we start to look at this, we can use data to build models to say what's going to happen in Fort Collins and give us some, uh, I'd say it's less fear of what we might do to adapt to this while we're also trying to solve how much carbon we've got in the air. And yeah, it is kind of frightening. And I think you can see it with people who've had floods this year, uh, had, had you know, the, the fires, um, all these things that are happening with more frequency. Someone said, oh, you mean the once in 500 year type floods that are now happening twice a year? It's that kind of a situation that I think is worrisome from people, but I think we also have a lot of strength in knowing that we can make changes now to still have actions that, whether they're national or individual, we can all make changes and do things to reduce the climate, the carbon in the air. There is still time if we act, right? I think that's very true. All right. I'd like to turn now to focus a little on how you got where you are. So as you know, one of the roles that we want the Spur Campus to play is to introduce people to careers they might not have considered if they're young people just starting out and to kind of take some of the mystery out of uh, some of the career paths for our lifelong learners who, who might be there at Spur. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got started on this path you're on now? Sure. I think it is part of a lot of things. It's serendipity. I wasn't somebody who started out saying, oh boy, I can't wait to work in soils and look at nematodes. That shirt, it was not in my mind. What I did like when I was growing up was um, being outdoors, 
being outdoors, being with people who like the outdoors, learning about the outdoors. Then when I was in college, I took a number, I was just undecided for maybe three years. Uh, you know, I flip-flopped between history and and um, microbiology. And then I met uh, a professor who said, you ought to go into parasitology. So I started looking at animal parasites and that I could tell real fast that wasn't my thing. And so I met another professor who said, oh, if you want to look at parasites, they're parasites of plants and they're almost invisible. And I thought, hmm. And it kind of tied in with, I did like microbiology. And so it tied in with that. And I ended up getting a, a TA in botany and uh, meaning I, I was a teaching associate in uh, graduate school in botany, looking at plants and thinking about plant roots and then looking at these tiny little nematodes that parasitized the plants and caused all sorts of economic damage. It was kind of hard to tell my parents and my grandmother what I did, but my uncle who had a farm was the greatest person to talk to because he knew. He got it right away. He got it right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're doing such and such. And have you seen the difference between, you know, this disease and that disease that they cause? And so I was pretty well hooked. And then in a postdoc, I went to the University of California, Riverside, and there are two nematology departments out there, one at Davis and one at Riverside. And uh, I started working in deserts, and that was a brand new thing. Very different ecosystems, uh, very different crops. And so I kept moving more and more into the ecology of, of soils. And what took you to Antarctica the first time? I had been working in deserts with um, a bunch of collaborations. I do a lot of team team uh, research and with some people that are just so knowledgeable it's so fun and you just learn and learn and learn <laughs> and they learn how to spell nematode too so we <laughs> uh, had had a number of grants in the in looking at deserts in the western U.S. and there are just too many species of nematodes and we could not say whether this climate change factor say we cut back water in the desert, even made it a more severe drought. What was that doing below ground? Or we gave it more rain than it should have had in an experiment. What, what did it have to do below ground? Because there were so many, you couldn't tell it at the species level, what was happening. There, there may have been a hundred species of nematodes in the ground. And we couldn't tell, well, was it affecting all of them or just one? And so a colleague of mine said, well, you really ought to go to a desert where there's no plants. And so I thought, ah, oh, the Sahara, that's too sandy. It blows, it moves. And I started looking into to big deserts. And this colleague of mine worked in Antarctica. And I said, do they have nematodes in the valley? And started looking at the literature, you know, the science. And I couldn't find people who had, had done much with them. And he said, oh, I'm going down next season. I'll just send you a soil sample and you can extract it. And that's kind of the way it started. My colleague, um, I'm still working with the colleague that I was working with way back then. That's great. That leads me pretty much directly into my next question was around if there were particular people or moments that really were pivotal in shaping where you are. Definitely there are. Definitely there are. I mean, there are people who encouraged me to, you know, take classes that I I didn't want to take. <laughs> and and, uh, you know, it turned out that that was smart and I may have made a C in it, but it really helped me understand where I was going. And then there are people that say, do you want a 
do you want to work on deserts rather than in agriculture? And I would, well, I'd never thought about it, but why not? And so I think it's taking advantage of a lot of those and then seeing, to me, seeing how what I worked on fit into the bigger picture of the whole ecosystem we see outdoors as you look out your window. Why is this tiny little worm important to anybody else? And then you see, well, it's working with a lot of other species in the ground to turn over carbon, to turn over nutrients, to help store soil, carbon and soils. And so it's everything's got a role. So yeah, I think opportunities are, it's just making a decision. Do you want to take a leap and go that way or not? And the ones that stick in your head are, or are the ones that obviously shaped your path. And there were probably a few you did say no to, but I think one of the pretty consistent themes that I hear from people as we, as I ask that question is that there are opportunities that come up. And part of that is about serendipity and luck and being in the right place at the right time. And then part of it is stepping through whatever door opens. Yeah. And I think in some cases it, you know, as I look back on it, it certainly was going to Antarctica you know, there weren't a lot of women down there when I went. And and so that is, uh, you know, you really get the feeling of double isolation. If, you know, if I hadn't been going with good colleagues that I, I trusted, um, I think that would, there's, yeah, I can just say that it's not, whether you're there, wherever you are, there's some, some things you really have to make a decision. Am I going to leap over this? Am I going to fight for this? Am I going to just hunker down and do my own thing? And uh, that just happens along your career. And are there more women in Antarctica doing research now? I'm assuming the answer to that is yes, but I'm... Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And it's they actually kept a chart on it um, in town on how many people on base, how many women, you know, how many going to the deep field. And so I just, when I was in, in McMurdo, I'd walk, when I was walking by, I'd always look at that and... I was also lucky that um, after about six or seven years that I'd been going with this one colleague, uh, I joined a, a long-term ecological research study there from the NSF, and there was another woman. And so that really helped having at least two on our, our LTR of 13 people. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about McMurdo? I think a lot of people hear about it. It's it's an international space, right? Is there? Can you talk a little bit about the collaboration that happens? Yeah, McMurdo, the U.S. has three stations, and McMurdo is the largest. It's kind of the gateway to the continent. There's a South Pole that we hear a lot about. But McMurdo is just like this massive construction train center where instead of trains, you've got planes going everywhere, all types of planes. And so people come. There's a lab there. The lab facilities are fantastic. And one of the things we have to do with nematodes is to bring them back from the field in you know they're in soils and we have to wash them out of the soils and so we have to have good lab facilities but we meet when you go to eat in town is what we call it you live in dorms there you don't live in tents and so they've got dorms they've got um, laboratory facilities that's where you pick up all your gear your tents and all that sort of stuff and get it ready to go to the field where you ship and pack everything to come off the continent and when you go to breakfast or lunch in the galley you never know who you're going to sit down and talk with. You may be sitting down with somebody who is a geologist, just got in from deep field, and you can talk to them about were they a paleontologist, or it could be an astronomer, or somebody who's been working with the astronomers, or a student that came from CSU that's now behind the counter in the galley saying, we got freshy food today, Diana, what do you want? 
that's always a boon, but it's it's always very interesting. And I think it builds this idea of we're all looking how things fit together. And we're we're looking at the science very carefully before we communicate what we found. It's really quite an amazing place. And it's cold. <laughs> And it's cold. That's the tagline to everything you say about uh, your experience in Antarctica. I can only imagine that there's good reason. Um, so is there anything else that we have not talked about so far that you think would be of interest to our listeners? Either about your journey or about what a day in the life is like for you? I don't know if there's anything in particular, but I do think it's a, this is a time where we are seeing so many discoveries and so many changes that I think will help us is if we work as a, a unit on various problems to understand what's happening in a faster manner. And I think particularly I'm many of the boards I sit on are now run by very young people who are wanting to make changes in the world. And I think every single step along our careers, we've got a place to be involved. And so I would say that you know, I would say that this idea of we can do something to be a more sustainable world really can happen. What do you do on a daily basis yourself around sustainability? What's important to you? I think, well, I think it's just a habit we all get into of, oh, do I want to use that plastic bag? Oh, you know, do I really want to get a bicycle, electric car? Or what am I getting into this morning? Or I'm going to now I even see myself saying, Ooh, how many plane trips do I want to take? You know, it's miles versus burning carbon. And so I think no matter, it's it's important just to do something, whether it's putting compost on your garden or picking up trash. Uh, every day, there's something that we can do. Great. Those are words to live by, indeed. So is there a place where people can find more information about your work or about the School of Global Environmental Sustainability that we should point people to? Yeah, I think for my lab, it's just you could Google Wall Lab at CSU, and that'll bring up, you know, all the research and everybody who's been in my lab and what they're doing now. Um, and I think right now for the school, it's just sustainability.colostate.edu. Great. Thank you. All right. So for my last question, our spur of the moment question, this is one that is very particular to you. So you would go to Antarctica and spend three months. Is that right? At a time, roughly? Two. About two. two, two yeah. or, okay. Uh, and there were many things that you did not have access to. What did you miss the most? Whether it was... Fruit. Fruit. Okay. Fruit. That was so easy. <laughs> that is so easy. We watch, I have to explain this. We don't get freshies is what we call them. Vegetables very often. Christmas is good, but, but so what happens is you kind of watch the log of what the C-130 is bringing down. You know, it'll say so many packs, passengers, and then it'll say something that indicates that there's going to be fresh fruit. So the next morning in the galley, after they've offloaded it, you can see people walking out with apples stuck in every pocket or a banana is like heaven. And I think I kept an orange in front of me for about four days before I finally said, okay, and now I'm eating my orange. I, I don't know when I'll get another one. So I'm going to eat that orange. And we covet those things. And that's fruit is number one. Number one, that answer came so easily. So um, thank you for sharing a little bit of that and a little glimpse into Antarctic research life. 
So thanks so much for your time, Diana. Really appreciate okay. it. Thank you for inviting me. Appreciate it. The CSU Spur of the Moment podcast is produced by Kevin Samuelson, and our theme music is by Ketza. Please visit the show notes for links mentioned in this episode. We hope you'll join us in two weeks for the next episode. Until then, be well. Be well.